Well, if we were to take a, a kind of a multiple choice regarding why we struggle with prayer, I mean, most people, if truth be told, struggle with prayer. And there's all kinds of reasons why we struggle with it. So, so let me give you a few and, uh, and kind of identify for yourself where you may be struggling with prayer. Um, perhaps you're too busy. Maybe you've got so many things going that, that when you are convicted or, you know, kind of confronted with this idea of pray, praying, you think, well, I just don't have enough time to pray. Perhaps you're too busy or perhaps you're too ashamed. You just feel as if your sin has been overwhelming and you don't want to approach God. You don't think he would hear you. Perhaps you're too content. You know, things are going great for you. You're not even thinking about it. It's not even an issue for you. You're not thinking not to pray. You're just not even thinking to pray. Um, perhaps you're too uncertain whether he hears you or not. And you're not even sure that you want to pray. And is it even a, a worthwhile endeavor? Um, perhaps you're too bitter. You're angry at God because things haven't gone the way you've wanted. Or, or perhaps you're just too dry. You're just... Yeah, you don't have it in you. I mean, what, what, what would be the reason that you would have if someone were to say, hey, how's, how are you doing in terms of your life of prayer before God? And you might say, well, not very well. And they were to say, well, why not? What would be your answer? Um, I think most of us agree, most people will say they, they really do struggle with prayer. I think many of you would want to resolve that. Now, in, in our modern age, we have all kinds of tools and all kinds of styles and strategies for prayer, and many of them have some value. I don't, I don't doubt it. Um, but I think there's something missing. I think there's a fundamental element of our life that is missing, that when we have it, prayer becomes, <clears throat> shall I say, more natural, or it becomes easier to do. And this is where the book of Philippians kind of comes in and helps us. Um, this is a book that was written by Paul. And it was really written as a thank you note to the church of Philippi. And he's writing this note to them, thanking them for the gift of money that they had sent him. But it's also, an, it's also a letter where Paul expresses in very, very pregnant language his love for these people, his affection for these people. And, and I think we're going to find, and then in this letter, we're going to study a prayer, but the prayer is birthed out of the affection that Paul has for the people. So his willingness and his desire and his ability to pray continually for these people is born out of his love for them, his passion for them, his concern for them. We're going to see the same thing in our life. You, you know, when you have a passion for something, you're thinking about it, you're dwelling upon it, you're considering it. And, and as we develop a greater love and passion and affection for one another, then the prayers that you make for one another will be more natural and easier. So if you will, turn with me to um, Philippians chapter 1. In your bulletin, it says 9 to 11. I'm actually going to start at verse 7. Um, 7 to 11. Philippians chapter 1, 7 to 11. Paul writes, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you all... You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment 
so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, you kind of hear it there. If we were to start in verse 3, you'd hear it even more about Paul's love for this church. Now, in all of Paul's letters, he expresses this thanksgiving. Most letters have a thanksgiving uh, that Paul expresses to the church over his gratitude for them. But I think you hear something a little different here in this letter, particularly in verse 3. I'll read it for you. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul has a unique bond of affection with this church at Philippi. He has a, a great zeal for them. He has a passion for them, and he tells us why in these first few verses. In verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, Paul is thankful and grateful to them because they've labored with him. They've hung tough. They've stayed consistent. They haven't wavered. They've been with Paul. If you were to read the rest of the letter, you'd also find out that they gave him money when he was in prison. He was in Philippi. He was in prison in Rome. They stood by him both in prayer but also in maintaining contact. But he's also thankful to them for their faith. They have a true and genuine faith. Remember last week with the, with the Thessalonian church, he said, I'm wondering if my work has been in vain. There's a little trepidation on Paul's part, not sure, not sure how they would handle the opposition and the affliction they were under. Not so here. Look in verse 6, he says, he says this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul's confirmed, he's confident. He feels happy that he can say, no, they have participated in the gospel, they've suffered for the gospel. I know that their faith is genuine and true and right. And he's thankful for that. But there's more going on. I think Paul's not just grateful. I think he's affectionate for them. You, you know, some relationships between leadership and people or pastors and people, can be distant, a little cold, a little sterile. I don't think you hear that with Paul. I mean, look what he says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul's expressing this idea. He goes on and he says, For your partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So when Paul was now bound in Rome in prison, they're still advancing the gospel. They're still treasuring the gospel with them in spite of persecution, not just to Paul, but to them. And so he says, I hold you in my heart. You know, in Proverbs 17, it says that a friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. They were brothers and sisters to Paul. They loved him. And that's why you see the language increase. Look in verse 8. He says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is doing no less than calling down God as a principal witness to testify to the Philippian church that he has a passion for them and that he's affectionate for them. And that Greek word for affection is our word for bowels. It's, you know, you feel something in your gut. I mean, that is his affection for this church. I mean, you hear the language, longing, passion. It's almost the language of lovers. That's how he feels about them. It doesn't change at the end of chapter 4. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. If you remember that from Thessalonians. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He loves them. He planted this church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. 
So I, I think overcoming an obstacle to prayer, I would argue, is born out of deepening affections for people. I mean, I, I think it, it causes us to just pause for a minute and, and wonder, is this not perhaps part of the reason that we struggle in prayer, at least prayer for other people, that we don't have deep affections for them? I mean, do we have these kind of affections for one another? I mean, do we pray for each other? Last week I mentioned it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have to encourage or exhort a woman who has a child, a newborn, and facing a deathly illness. You don't have to tell her that she ought to pray. You don't even have to show her how to pray. She begins crying out to God naturally because of the bond of affection she has with child. So as our affections grow for one another, there's going to be a natural encouragement to pray for one another. I'm going to be more concerned about your spirituality. I'm going to be more concerned about the financial downturn you're in. I'm going to be more concerned about the marriage. And it's going to move me to pray naturally because I have affections for you. Now, that's kind of the rub. The rub is it's not easy to have affections with everybody in a church this size. It's more different. I mean, the reason that we don't always feel this sense of unity is many of us, um, we have idiosyncrasies. We're awkward. We, we fear being in certain relationships. We, we have established friendships. We're busy with kids, with careers. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we don't naturally gravitate towards each other. You tend to gravitate toward those people that are like you or that like you. And, and yet, here you are in a room filled with people that, you know what, if it wasn't for the gospel, I might not be here. In, in the sense that I, I don't feel this bond of affection with people. Well, let me just remind you that Paul was a highly trained Jewish scholar, a Pharisee, hanging out with the Philippians. I mean, there was no commonality there. They didn't have a history that they shared. They didn't even have a language. They shared Greek, but Paul's language would have been Hebrew, at least his mother tongue. And so there would have been no commonality. So what birthed such affection that Paul had for this church? Well, there's a number of things. I mean, I mean, first, he didn't see them as just Philippians and he's an Israelite. I mean, he, he saw them as children of God. They've been redeemed. They've been restored. God has saved them. They're eternal beings. He says in 2 Corinthians, after he came to faith, he said, therefore, we regard no one according to a worldly point of view. We don't look at people as mere mortals. People are all immortal. Every one of us will live forever, either with God or apart from God, but you are immortal. You've been made in the image of God. You've been, your life will go on past this life. And he saw that in the Philippian believers. He knew they were with God. They were partakers of grace, he said, that they, their salvation was certain. And so he looked at them differently. He didn't just look at the oddness or the awkwardness that they had, but he looked at them as children of God. C.S. Lewis speaks about this in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, he gave. It's a great sermon. You can read it. You can get it offline. It's not long, and it's not hard to understand. Sometimes C.S. Lewis, you've got to read it three times and then turn it upside down and read it again, and you start to understand it. But, but this one is understandable. But, but, and this is a little bit of an extended quote, so just bear with me. He says, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a whore and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So getting a handle on what we're really about will develop affections. But not just that. Paul had affections for this odd group because they ministered with him. They partnered with him in the gospel. They served him, and he served them. In other words, as a church begins to serve together, minister together, you begin to see God's grace work in one another's lives, and you begin to see that there are affections between you that weren't originally there. Or they suffered together. They did. They suffered with Paul. They suffered for the gospel. Paul watched them suffer. Paul suffered with them. And you know how that is. I mean, we see the movies, the two men are in the foxhole, whether it's D-Day or, or the Battle of the Bulge, and they go through this fight that they don't expect to survive, and they do. And there's a bond because they've suffered together. As we as a church begin to suffer one with the other, and I'm suffering for you, you suffer for me, affections are going to grow. So, so all I want to say in this first part of the sermon is developing a passion for God's people isn't you white-knuckling obedience. I've just got to love them more. They may be very different than you. They may be odd. They may, they may be very awkward. But what develops affection within a church is an awareness that we all are held by the gospel, that we are called to serve together and suffer together, and that will develop affections for us, which I think will lead to a greater inducement to prayer. So that's the first thing. Paul is passionate. Folks, if you are not passionate or not growing in passion, then ask God for that. Ask God to give you a heart for the people that you worship with. Ask God to, to stimulate your soul towards moving towards them with greater grace, seeing them in a different light. They're not just odd by their behavior, but they've been redeemed by a gospel that has redeemed you. So that's the first argument I make. Developing a passion, I think, moves into just naturally coming out with prayer. Okay, so Paul then explains the prayer that he prays. And again, he wants them to know, this is how I'm praying for you. And the prayer starts in verse 9. And, you know, one thing he's doing when he's teaching us how to pray, the kind of the content of prayer, he's teaching us not just how to pray, but really how to live. And and the two are never far apart, because you're going to tend to pray the way you live, and you're going to live the way you pray. I mean, over time, the two won't be far apart. And so Paul gives us this prayer. And here's what he prays for. I'm going to give it to you in one sentence, and I'm going to look at it in three parts. One sentence. He's praying that their love would increase, that they would live godly lives for the glory of God. Let me say it again. He's praying that their love will increase, that they'll live godly lives to the praise and glory of God. And and you'll see that. It's one long Greek sentence, and I'm just taking it in three parts. First, he prays that their love would increase. Look in verse 9. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So I don't think Paul's implying here that they don't love each other. They do, but every church even with a modest amount of love, needs to grow in that love for one another. And so he's praying it would abound more and more. Now that that Greek idea is, it's like a river swelling with the water running over the banks. In other words, abounding more and more is a container that can't contain all that's being poured in it. God, would you give them a love that will swell over their lives? 
both for God and for each other. Now, this is different. This love that he's asking for is different than the worldly counterpart. So worldly love. I think we all have enough of the world to see that it tends to be more of a self-interested love. It tends to be a love that is, that is driven more, uh, it vacillates based upon feelings and perceptions. I mean, the love of the world tends to be more centered on me. It tends to be conditional based upon how you behave. It's a sentimental love, really, anymore. It's an emotional love with the emphasis on emotion. The, the love of our culture is almost moving towards a syrupy consistency where if you really love someone, you just basically have to accept everything and everyone without any discrimination as to what is good or bad about what the person does or does not do. That's not a biblical love. Uh, the love that Paul is calling us to have for one another, to abound, is a love that is, that is a discriminating love. It's, a, it's constrained by these two modifiers, this, this idea of knowledge and discernment. You've got to have knowledge with love, right? Knowledge is the traveling companion for love because if you don't have knowledge, well, knowledge needs love because knowledge without love puffs up. But, but, but love without knowledge tends to act irresponsibly. It's like the parent that says yes every time their child asks for something. You know, that isn't love. That non-discriminating love, that isn't really a biblical love. This knowledge helps us increase our capacity to really love. Now, what is this knowledge he's talking about? Well, clearly, I would argue that it's the knowledge of God's love for us as displayed in the gospel. God has revealed a love to us in the gospel. Now, you know this. We, we've read it. In fact, Nick quoted a verse from, uh, I believe it was First John, but Mine's in Romans 5, 8, where he says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this love that we are to have for one another is a sacrificial love. It's a gospel love. It's a, it's a love that mimics and flows out of the nature of the gospel. But it's more than just that. It's a discerning love. That word discerning, by the way, is our word judicious. So it's a, it's a discriminating, it's a scrutinizing love. In other words, it doesn't love everything equally. It is able to discern what is evil and what is good, and it may love evil, but it loves it differently than it will the good. That there's a balance there. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 5 where the writer writes, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You don't love everything the same. And that's what he's calling for us to do, to, to have an abounding love that is, that is constrained by knowledge and by discernment. So do we have this love? Is this love abounding in your life? When you consider your marriage, for example, do you love your spouse with this gospel-fueled love? Or is it conditioned upon the behavior of the spouse? I mean, do, do you parent with a gospel love, a sacrificial love, not saying yes to everything asked for, but that it would be discriminating in terms of what is best for the child or your relationships in this church or at work. It is your love in their interest and not just in your own. Is it a constant love or does it tend to waver? Is it a sacrificial love it moved by volition and will and not feelings? Is it a forgiving love, not keeping record of wrongs? 
Paul speaks about this kind of love in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the Corinthian church, highly gifted church, but also had a lot of internal conflict and trouble. And so he explains in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is the love that we are called to pray for for one another. It, it's, it's, a, it's a love that is sacrificial, giving, interested in your benefit. Can you pray for that with me? Can we as a church pray that God would give us the grace that we might love in this manner? Uh, I would also ask you to pray that we would ask God for the grace to understand the nature of the love and the cross. If you don't dwell on the cross, if, you don't, if you're not mindful to consider the nature of the cross on a regular basis, you'll have trouble loving this way because you're really trying to mimic a gospel love. So if you're not thinking about the gospel and appreciating the gospel, this is why the gospel isn't just to save us from hell to heaven. This is why the gospel helps us with faith day by day by day by day. We think about the gospel. We think about what he did for us. It's amazing. Amazing to think that God would take flesh, become a man, dwell among us, live perfectly before the Father, bear the sins of a people so that we might be with God. What an act of... Isn't it... Is there any story so profound as the gospel? So this is how we're called to pray, that we want to abound in love with knowledge and discernment. But that's not all, because we don't want to just be a community that loves. That's kind of like a, a 60s, kind of a, a group from the 60s to 70s. We're just going to be a love club. That's not what it's for. Look in verse 10, because it leads to the next petition. He says, so that, you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, this love is not an end in itself. It's to move us so that we will approve what is excellent. Now, to approve is, to, uh, is really to test or to examine. Paul is praying in the second prayer that we would live a godly life, that we would approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. That's the second part of the prayer. Our love would abound. And our lives would be uh, lived in a godly manner. The way that we move towards godliness is by approving what is excellent. Now, what he means by excellent is he's saying, Paul is telling the Philippians, he's saying, I am praying that you will approve what is of supreme value. In other words, that you will be able to discern what is of greater value than something else. That you would love those things that have eternal value over those things that have less value. Now think about how important this is. For you to make excellent choices, to live in a godly measure, you've got to know valuations. You have to know what's important and what's less important. I mean, isn't that not what leads us into all kinds of trouble? If I overvalue my need to be accepted by a group of friends, I'm going I'm to make choices that lead me into that, but that's a lesser value. God, give me the grace to know what the supreme value is, what is best versus what is good. Because if you don't know how to value things, you're going to make all kinds of choices that will lead you to all kinds of places. But you won't want to be there when you get there. So Paul's praying, God, give us the grace. 
We are to pray for each other. Give us the grace to approve of those things that are valuable and right. And here's what it leads us to. It leads us to purity and blamelessness. Let me explain those words real quick. Because to be pure doesn't mean you don't sin. In fact, it's an interesting Greek word. It's a compound word. It means son judges. It's son and judges. That's what it means. So let me give you an example. You're a potter and you make a vase. You're a dishonest potter. You make a vase. Leave it in the kiln too long. It cracks. You cover it with a nice glaze of wax. And you sell it for a perfectly made piece of pottery. And then, of course, they discover that, you know, after time, the wax melts and they see it wasn't so perfect after all. He's a duplicitous. He, he said one thing, he did another. He's, he's a hypocrite. He's duplicitous. Okay, so the honest potter uh, would bake it and he would stick it out in the sun. True st- you know, this is what they would do. They'd stick it out in the sun and they'd write sincere or Latin without wax. Look at it. It's being tested by the sun. There's no wax. What you see is what you get. It, it's true product. And what, what Paul's praying for is, God, give us the grace to approve things that are valuable so that our lives are pure. There's no duplicity with, it, with me. That, that, that I'm an open book before you. What I say is what I do. What I do is what I say. And, and to be blameless isn't to be perfect either. To be blameless means we're not stumbling along in life. Oh, you may sin, you repent, but you're not stumbling through life. So Paul is praying, God, give us the grace that this church might be godly, that is, sincere, and not stumbling in sin. But notice what he says. He says in verse 10 that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's for the day of Christ. In other words, your choices in terms of what is valuable have to be driven by that day. So when my kids were young, and, or actually when they were getting older, and they were making decisions and choices that I thought could be more detrimental to them, I would often say, okay, if you want to spend your money this way, will you be happy in three years, five years, ten years? Okay, if you want to, if you want to move into great, to this, this set of friends, will you be happy that you did that in five, ten, fifteen years? It was a very good tool to help them assess, is this really valuable to me? Now, when you look at it in light of the day of Christ... That's what helps us make good choices. The day of Christ, by the way, is the same day that the Old Testament speaks on the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. And the day of Christ is the day that Jesus Christ, God's Son, will come back in glory, power, and authority. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. All of human history is going to be wrapped up. All space and time will give way to God's glory. It's a day where there is no more crying, mourning, or pain. The old order of things has been put away. We'll dwell with God. It's a day of days. But it's not a day to frighten you. This isn't a, you know, if you're naughty or, you know, it's not like a Santa Claus in, in terms of you're kind of worried about the day, that is Christmas Day, and if I don't behave right, then he's not going to give me what I want. This is a good day for the Christian. This is a day that Paul is holding up as an encouragement to you, giving you hope. Make choices based on the day because it's a good day. It's a great day. And so he's telling us, pursue holiness, pursue godliness, pursue sincerity in life, pursue blamelessness in life, because that day will make it all worthwhile. So when you approve things that are excellent based upon the day. Now, clearly, you know, we live in a very complicated age. And, uh, I mean, the ethical questions that are placed to me, a lot of times I really don't know what to say. I mean, there are some marital issues, there are some 
parental issues. There are some financial issues. There are some um, issues that I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer. And so, God, give us the grace to approve what's excellent. But I do know the path to get to the answer. Will it be valuable on the day? Will it be valuable, 5, 10, 15, the day I stand before Christ? So what I'm calling you to do is we don't just pray for an abounding love. We pray that we would have wisdom to approve those things that are excellent so that on that day we'll be satisfied. Do you understand what I'm saying? The ability to value things is essential. And we have misvalued much of life. And so the call is that, we're, that God give us the grace to do it. It also involves you opening up your lives for one another. Am I walking in a duplicitous manner? Do you see me not walking in godliness? And, and us having the ability to say to one another, you are invited into my life to speak to me, that on the day I will be happy. That we can be praying, not just for that, but we can be praying for a greater awareness of the day. I mean, how often do you think about that day that Scripture seems to point to so often? So a classic example in my life, we went on vacation last month or at the end of May, and I had to do a little bit of planning and look at places to rent, and, and we had to make decisions about what not to buy beforehand to save up some money to pay the rent and, and, and the whole thing. And, and it, was, it was, wasn't a lot of work. Well, it was a little bit of work, but it was a joyous work because I knew we'd get to spend the time together as a family. And I was looking for the day, I was planning for the day, we made decisions in light of the day, and I thought, if I'm willing to do that on vacation, and I'm already looking forward to next year, if I'm willing to do that on vacation, why am I not concerned as much about the day? So I'm not discouraged, I just ask, God, give me the grace to think about the day. And let's pray that for one another, to pray about the day. So that our choices now, we will be able to value things rightly, now for the day. Now, to the non-Christian here, uh, this is new news to you. Uh, it may be refreshing to the Christian, but it's new news to the non-Christian. The non-Christian is looking at space and time as being all of life. And so their decisions are going to be bound by what is good today for today. And, and it's going to be bound by material things and temporal things. Whereas the Christian, you're transcendent. So your valuation is different. You value things totally different. That's why you can give your life. Because to give this life is to gain life. That's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. And the non-Christian has to be aware, as I'm sure they are, that it is. It's bound in space and time. And it's a very closed universe in which they live and make decisions. Okay, the third petition he brings up, follows, of course, in verse 11, filled with the fruits of righteousness. So Paul is praying, first, that our love would abound, and secondly, Paul is praying that we would live godly lives, and you see, to the glory of God. He says, filled with fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is he saying in this, in this verse? I think he's saying that Paul is praying that this church, and I am praying for you, that your lives would be filled with a righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? That your life would bear fruit that, is, um, that would display the character of God, that he is reigning in your life. So, so your life would be filled with, with holiness and a reflection of God's majesty and, and, and God's loveliness and grace. You know, you think about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, peace and patience and joy and love and those things, that when those things emanate out of a life of a Christian, 
they are seeing the fruits of God's righteousness. It's, it's really a display of God's reign in your life. When you live in a way that mimics God, they're seeing God, and therefore you're bearing fruit of God. Now, there's no real surprise as to how this happens for the Christian. Look with me. He says that filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ. So these works that I'm saying, these fruit that you're bearing, have to come through faith in Christ, your union with Jesus. So in other words, the non-Christian cannot bear fruits of righteousness. Only the Christian can, because only the Christian has faith in Christ. Now when I mean faith in Christ, what I mean by that is that they have come to a place where they've seen their sin, and, and they see their separation from God, and they appeal to God based upon the merits of Christ, for forgiveness and grace. And so God in mercy takes their stony, self-centered heart out. He puts a heart in that's flesh that responds to the things of God. But it's more than just that. It's more than that. The fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ are, are as we walk with Christ day in and day out, as you abide with Christ. This is why in this church you hear leadership across the board speak about faith as not just entering in the faith, but faith is a daily exercise we live with. This is what Jesus is getting at in terms of these fruits of righteousness. He says in John 15, this is Jesus speaking, he said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So what Paul's praying for is he wants this church to live in display of God's glory, but, but through faith in Christ, that you're doing works that you couldn't do apart from Christ. You're not just staying within your safe zone. These are the gifts that I have, and I can exercise these. It is that, but it's more. You're doing things that are out of your reach that require the power of Christ dwelling in you to do. That's what he's calling us to do, that we would be a church bearing those fruits of righteousness. But these fruits are for the glory of God and not the glory of ourselves. That's why he says all of this to the glory and praise of God. See, the world bears fruits all the time. Their fruits are generally, or perhaps they're seeking the accolades of the world, they're seeking security while being within the world, perhaps they're seeking the pleasures of the world, but everybody bears fruits. The Christian bears fruits that reflect the greatness of God. Now, if you're wondering, does that not seem egotistical of God to want us to just live for his glory? Let me ask you a question. Has he not given you life? Does he not give you breath? Has he not given you gifts? Does he not give you grace to exercise the gifts? It says in Deuteronomy, he even gives you the wealth you have. You say, yeah, but I've done a lot, Tom. I've really worked hard. And with whose strength have you worked so hard? Is it really that counterintuitive to think that if he is giving you everything, it might not be right to live for the one who is giving you life right now? I mean, isn't it amazing how often we can live without thought? You know, I was meditating last night in preparation for the sermon on Hebrews 1.4 where it speaks about Jesus being the exact imprint of God's nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is upholding the whole thing we're standing on right now. The whole thing. He's upholding it all. Everything, thrones, dominions, powers, they were all created by him. And Colossians says they were all created for him. We are for him. 
So that's why we want to live for the glory. We don't want to live for the glory of our name or the renown of our name. When, when you mother, you want to mother for the glory of God. That means, it doesn't mean that you, of course you want your children to be, to grow up and, and understand the things of God. But even your parenting is still, God, I want you honored in this. When I preach, I don't want to preach for my name. That would be wrong-headed. I want to preach for God's glory that your joy would be bound up in that. I mean, when you work, you know, men and women in your careers, you know, you're a mask of God. You're not doing it for your accomplishments or simply to acquire enough money in your pension to retire. You are working, displaying the gifts that God has given you so that others would say, we see a mask of God. We see the characteristics. We see the fruits of righteousness in their life. So much of this world is is ignorant of all these things. Jonathan Edwards was one who was not ignorant of these things. And, and he writes in his first resolution, he, he wrote many resolutions over the first number of years of his um, walk, but this is his first resolution. He says, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration. He doesn't see a separation between the glory of God and his personal joy. Because if God is most glorified in my actions, I know that I'll be most happy in that as he serves me with the grace. So, so Paul is praying. First, he's expressing a passion. That's what we see in verses 7 and 8. There's a passion for God's people. And then in 9, 10, 11, he gives this prayer. God, may our love abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. And that love is so that we would live godly lives by approving things that are of supreme value. And we do this all to the glory of God. And in that glory, we'll have our greatest joy. So let's take a few minutes and pray. I'll begin um, in prayer. And, um, and what I would ask you to do is perhaps keep your Bibles open to this prayer or perhaps the passage in 1 Thessalonians 3 that we read last week, which I, I hope you have been praying for your brothers and sisters out of that prayer. And let's spend a few minutes um, in prayer for one another as we have been instructed uh, by this apostle. And then after a few minutes, we'll close the prayer. I'll begin. And I would ask you to pray loudly, and, uh, and as you probably could say, as I say, uh, pray briefly so that others may pray, pray as well. Father, thank you. Um, for this time, for this word. Um, Father, I, I do pray for us that our common love for you and the gospel would be the fuel to move us to have greater affections for one another. And, and may these greater affections that we have for one another, may it give birth to greater prayer. Father, bring us to that place by your grace. I pray in the name of Jesus.